Legal Justice and Kingdom Response from the sermon series, Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. Oh, it's been a while. It's been a little bit. Um, the first thing I have in my notes, it says, I had a baby. Uh, yeah, I had a baby. Um, her name's Lucia. Some people call her Lucia. Some people call her Lucia. We're not Italian, but we call her name is Lucia. That's my baby. Uh, at her 100th day. Yeah, that's her. She's very smiley. She's very wonderful. And uh, that, oh, that dress um, was for a wedding before she pooped all over it and we had to throw it out. So at least we got a picture with her in it. But yeah, uh, we had a baby, Sonia and I. Sonia's very healthy. Sonia's doing well. I'm doing well. Um, it's been quite the adventure. But yeah, Pastor Peter was gracious enough to give me, give me a long break from preaching uh, just to be with my child and whatnot. So yeah, here I am. Here I am. It's good to be back. It's good to be with the church in this capacity, even though, you know, we're not quite together yet. Um, we're getting there. We're getting there. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to listen to your word, to study it, to observe it, to experience it, to digest it. Lord, we know your, your word is living and active. We know that scripture is powerful. We know, God, that it is relevant today. And it's with heavy hearts, Lord, that we lift up our nation and our world to you. And we ask you, Father, for divine power. We ask you, God, for power to overcome Power to grieve, power to lament, power to find hope, power to protest for change. God, we lift up all those who are hurting, who have been hurt by power, and we ask you that you would speak to them, that your presence would be with them. And would your presence be with us today? Lord, I pray for um, your word to be spoken and for your people to listen. And that, Lord, um, we would just be faithful to you in this way, in this service. So we thank you, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, our text is, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 42. Uh, it's an interesting text to say the least. Uh, interesting in that it's, you know, I, I think many people know of this passage, even though they might not quite uh, identify it from the verse descriptor. It's, it's when you get slapped, you turn the other cheek, right? And Matthew does a really intentional <clears throat> and fantastic job setting up this text. Right, because uh, he, when he writes it out, when he lays it out, Jesus, uh, he describes the character of the disciple of Christ through the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are poor in spirit, etc., etc. He then identifies the disciples of Christ as salt and light. 
So he gives them both descriptor and function. There's both descriptor and function in being salt and light. And this is key, right? The idea to be salt and light means that there is something very active about it. It's not a very passive thing. It's very active in what we're called to do. There's function behind the nomenclature that Christ uses here. Because Christ has expectations of the people of God. These are radical when we read them, but in fact, they are there. They're being explained to us in order to fulfill the law that God had written out prior. And I must say, given the nature of this passage, I'm going to be referring a lot back to Pastor Peter's passage on anger, right? Because you think about it, if someone slaps you in the face and someone insults you, the natural response is anger. And as Pastor Sunita pointed out last week, we are looking at another antithesis today. Uh, many commentaries, they call this passage or they, they dub this passage, love does not retaliate. Love does not retaliate. I actually prefer something more active, uh, like love actively works for good or love shines light in all circumstances. Something that's less passive than just does not retaliate. And if I could be honest, um, and maybe it's like I'm just really rusty. Uh, I struggled really hard with this text. I struggled really hard because what Christ is teaching about in this passage is undeniably power dynamics. Christ is teaching us how to navigate through power dynamics. How do we balance this dynamic of power with the rest of scripture and then apply it to us today. That was what I was struggling about. Because if you think about what is happening in the world, there are so many people who are being affected by the misuse of power. There are protests. There are angry riots. There are angry authorities. All of this circles around this discussion about power. So how do we balance this particular text and then apply it to us today, especially given the social climate that we live in right now? See, most, I would say, don't actually abide by this word. I think this word is very challenging. Um, it's very complex, but at the same time, it's very straightforward. So I was, as I was reading this, as I was struggling through this, as I was crying over this text, uh, I had many questions. So I figured we might as well just take a uh, walk through the questions that I had and just go through the thought process as we exegete this text. Um, but I have four questions <clears throat> that I'm going to go over today. I had six, but now there are four. Four questions that we're going to look at today. So we're going to, let's just read our text right now and then we'll just dump, jump into it. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an, resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
So I have a quiz for all our youth that are watching this right now. Parents, uh, $20 to the youth that gets this right, for your kids who get this right. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Who is this quote famously attributed to? $20 on the line. Who is this quote famously attributed to? Yes, I am on a Jeopardy kick. Austin Rivers' uh, run on Jeopardy is on Netflix. We watched the whole thing. It was fantastic. But if your child answered Hammurabi, they are correct. This is a famous part uh, that comes from Hammurabi's code of conduct, code of justice. It is also well documented in both Exodus and Leviticus in the Old Testament. But essentially the purpose of these laws, this code, I see someone fist pumping in the back, is to enforce justice and reduce the cycle of revenge that was happening. Because back then in those days, what was happening was when someone experienced a wrongdoing, what they would do is do something back, but probably worse because they're retaliating, right? So they were reducing the cycle of, re- of revenge. And in actuality, the prologue to this code, Hammurabi writes, it's to make justice visible in the land and to destroy the wicked person and the evildoer that the strong might not injure the weak. The strong might not injure the weak. But the thing was is he did not consider all people equal, right? And I, I, want, I want to read this excerpt of his code to you. If a man has destroyed the eye of a a man of the gentleman class, they shall destroy his eye. If he has destroyed the eye of a commoner, he shall pay one minae of silver. If he has destroyed the eye of a gentleman's slave, he shall pay half the slave's price. Clearly, the Babylonians did not live under a social system that treated all people equally. So as I consider this, and as I look at to what Jesus is addressing here, you know, you kind of figure that the logical progression of equity and justice, in which we know that Jesus represents, should teach us that Jesus is saying, stand up for your value. That should be the antithesis to Hammurabi's code. Jesus does the opposite at a glance. So my first question came from Uh, verse 39, right? Jesus, what do you mean by an evil person? Jesus, what do you mean by an evil person? Uh, You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Jesus, what do you mean by an evil person? This is an important definition for us today because we we have to understand what Jesus means by evil. And that word evil is the word panos, Right? And when we, when we see that word panas, it is attributing to pain, laborious trouble, or um, it emphasizes this inevitable agony that comes with misery that comes along with evil. Right? So Jesus instructs us, do not resist this evil. And this can be applied to the evil someone that approaches us and does evil to us, or the evil institution. Right? Jesus instructs us not to resist this evil. And so, therefore, we also must ask, what does resist mean? And in this case, in this context, resist means this forceful public opposition of evil. And if I were to give some background of what he is exactly talking about or addressing back in those days, is back then, people were actually suing each other like crazy, left and right, 
court cases. It kind of sounds like today, but it's not what God wanted when he wrote this law and gave it to his people. You see, the purpose of the law was, again, to stop the cycle of vengeance. It was not to start an endless cycle of lawsuits. Okay, so that makes sense, right? Where we don't want vengeance and we don't want all these lawsuits. But God, um, if you're telling me I need to be salt and light, if you're telling me I need to stand for justice and righteousness, how am I supposed to not resist evil, right? That is the question that went through my mind. So we reach our second question, which I can kind of sum up as, how do we balance righteousness and justice with the text. How do we balance righteousness and justice with this text? See, the big issue here is that we're reading this notion that when someone is being evil, you should not resist them. We should not publicly oppose them. But at the same time, we see in other parts of scripture that God has a heart for justice and that we are called to play a big part in it. Right? This is our biblical theology coming together. Right? Biblical theology means that we need to take the whole Bible as one into account. And to be salt and light, God invites us to take part in justice. Even in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness for they will be filled. It's right there in the same chapter. And I want to I, I go to Psalm 82 right now to just give you a more active picture of what we're actually looking at and drawing attention of, right? So Psalm 82 says, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the quote-unquote gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I see here four very clear and definitive action steps centered on justice and righteousness. Defend the weak. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them all from the hand of the wicked. Active, evil-resistant Action words God is calling his people to. See here, it's clear God calls us to intervene on behalf of the oppressed. God calls us to move on behalf of those who are in need. But it's also a little bit more than just that. Think about this in light of the Sermon on the Mount as we've studied this sermon series. We're called to aid someone who is having the image of God in them compromised. Someone who's weak, someone who's in need, someone who's oppressed, someone who is being dominated by evil, by wickedness. We are called to intervene on behalf of those who are having the image of God in them compromised. We're called to bring equity to those who are less fortunate. All right, how do we look at this, hold this, and then take not resisting and put that together? How does that work? So we need to look at the illustrations that Christ then gives us. Verse 39, 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus gives us five examples here, five illustrations of what he's calling us to do. The first three, we can group up into these illustrations that address someone who is being victimized by power. Right? The first three are someone who seems to be victimized by power. And when I read these, the first question that came to mind as I was studying this text was, Jesus, do we take these directions literally? Do I take these directions literally? It's the big question here. And I think it's the big question for most of us. Because the image of getting slapped in the face is not fun. Right? And, you know, it's hard to say. Because have you ever been slapped in the face by a stranger? Raise your hand if you have. It's not fun. I'll tell you that much. It's actually infuriating. In fact, I actually have a preference for the one who slaps me in the face. I actually prefer that it's out of hostility, that they have a reason to slap me in the face because there are actually people out there, whether it's drunken stupor, whether it's cockiness, whether it's peer pressure, who knows, they do it because they think it's funny. And they do it for the entertainment of themselves and others because what they're doing is they're flexing power over you because if you think about it, if they didn't think they could get away with slapping you in the face, if they thought that there would be major repercussion from slapping you in the face, what, I don't think they would be so inclined to do it. The result? Rage. You are just left with rage. And then a command? to not be angry, and then a command to turn your other cheek. It's hard to say. Taking this passivity literally can be dangerous as well. Think about it. It can lead to a 65-year-old woman being attacked on her way to church and brutally beaten up on the street, and then apartment staff watching, doing nothing, and then closing the door on her while she lies there, bruised and beaten. Again, it sounds nothing like defending, upholding, rescuing, delivering. Right? Those four words, they're not passive words. Action taken on behalf of the other. At the same time though, when I look at Christ's life, he takes strikes from the Roman soldiers. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't berate them. Maybe he'll question them. Even though we know that Jesus, at the snap of his fingers, at a word from his lips, could summon legions of angels to fend for him. I'm going to skip to the third example because the third example is also very touchy at the time. Uh, the third example, walking one mile and then going two, right? This was a Persian practice adopted by the Romans 
to force citizens of an occupied country to carry heavy things for soldiers. So essentially, the Roman soldiers could go to the Jews because they were occupying their land, their country. They took over. They conquered them. And they can just enlist whoever they wanted to carry their heavy equipment for a mile. This is also power being flexed. Think about it. It's humiliating for the conquered. You're forced to serve someone who's taken your country. And it's hateful. You're left with nothing but anger. And sure enough, Christ models this for us in his walk to Golgotha, right? As he carries his own cross to his execution. And then when he can carry it no more, they get Simon to carry it for him. But then I go to the second illustration. And it's this second illustration that leads me to believe that um, it's the heart that is truly most important in this, not the passivity, pass, yeah, passivity that we need to focus on, right? So the second illustration is when someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat also. This is set in a courtroom, right? Because a lot of lawsuits back in those days. And in antiquity, the undergarment was considered your shirt, right? It's what you were under, and the outer garment was your coat. And you could literally be sued for your shirt right off your back. And if you lost the case, then you'd have to give them your shirt. But you could not have your outer garment taken away from you. It was protected. It was legally your right and your protected right to keep this coat on you because it's what kept you warm at night. And so if you had a literal adoption of this, you were sued, you lost the case, you have to give them your undergarment, and then you say, hey, take my undergarment anyway, you would be standing in court completely naked, and then you'd be arrested for public nudity. Literal adoption doesn't quite make sense because, you know, if we do have a literal adoption, we do need literal consequences. It doesn't quite make sense here. So do I take these directions literally? The answer I landed on is not quite. All right, I, I think there is, uh, there is a literal, there can be a literal embodiment of it, but the heart of the matter is quite uh, the central idea that Christ is trying to put forward here. And that leads to our fourth question. So what then is actually being said in these illustrations? Jesus what then is actually being said in these illustrations? I do believe N.T. Wright does a wonderful job explaining what's occurring in the instance with the slap on the cheek. It's going to be on your screen. To be struck on the right cheek in that world almost certainly meant being hit with the back of the right hand. That's not just violence, but an insult. It implies that you're inferior, perhaps a slave, a child, or in that world, and sometimes even today, a woman. What's the answer? Hitting back only keeps the evil in circulation. Offering the other cheek implies, hit me again if you like, but now as an equal, not an inferior. Christ is calling his people to be secure in their identity. 
See, this is not just like a cognitive, like, yes, I know, like, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the king. I feel like we say it a lot, right? We say, you are a son, you are a daughter of the king. And like, yes, we hear it on Sunday. Maybe we hear it during small group. Maybe we hear it during worship. Maybe we hear it during songs that we listen to. But do we really believe that? Right? See, because to, to embody this scripture, to embody what Christ is saying to us in this, in this passage, you can't do it unless you know who you are. And that's more, that's beyond just a cognitive, yes, it is, it is a fact that I am a son or daughter of the king of kings. Right? It must be something that you've put on. And track with me here. It must be something that you've put on and it must be something that you know that cannot be removed from you. It's not something that can be taken away from you because it's not just knowing it, it's actually who you are and they can't take away who you are, right? So your response in actuality when you respond in the way Christ directs us to respond is in fact speaking back to power, You speak back to power because when the one uh, insults you, is condescending to you, is rude to you, tries to make you lower, tries to dehumanize you, tries to say that you're less than, what you are responding with is not just you will not take this away from me, right? That is retaliation, this you will not take away. You are responding, you cannot take this away from me. It's not possible for you to take this from me. Because who I am is grounded on something that is far more eternal, far more grander than this instance, far more grander than you. Because God called me to this. God calls me to who I am. And this is the main contrast between the original code of law that people were interpreting and what Christ describes. Because it's what the justice is producing here. The first set of justice sought to stop this cycle of uh, vengeance. But what happened was there was still retaliation. There was still this getting even, right? And there's still this, this, this measurement of what even actually was. What Christ is doing is he's saying, I want to stop the whole system to begin with. I want to stop this circulation of evil. Retaliation is the way of the world. And it is satisfying. It satisfies the human flesh. That is true. But the quiet defiance that Christ describes quells the cycle of hatred. It dismantles systems of inequity. Your response becomes, if you insult me to lower my humanity, I will assert my equality even if you strike me again. And that assertion comes from who you are. Responding this way, I do believe, is a jarring, shocking, surprising show of what it means to stand as sons and daughters of God. Think about it. I think the best example that comes to mind is Martin Luther King Jr. Prime example. Think about his life. Think about his ministry. Think about what he's known for. And yes, like he wasn't a perfect person, but think about what he did. Peaceful protest. 
If they attack us, do nothing. Just let us be seen. Bring this into light. And what did it do? It pointed the world to the injustice that was occurring upon black people. It disgusted people. It shocked people. It horrified people. And what Martin Luther King Jr. was doing through this was speaking to power. In each illustration Christ uses in this scripture, the Christian is protesting a world that values and operates power by violence. The Christian highlights and empowers others by sacrificing their own comfort and rightful desires in order to positively impact the aggressor. What you're doing is you're speaking to someone who is flexing power on you and your response is eliciting change in their heart. It is disarming power with grace. It is disarming power with grace. Verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So these are the last two illustrations. And the last two illustrations we group up because there's a power shift. Right? We have the power now. Someone is asking of us. A stranger is coming asking for money. And yes, like it's, I'm sure it's happened to you before. We live near New York City. Right, there's a lot of panhandlers. And you know, a lot of times the first question to mind is, this is rightfully my wealth. This is my change. You know, I can generally keep an account of how much cash is in my pocket, right? And even though this is rightfully my wealth, this is rightfully mine to keep, this is rightfully mine because I earned it and I worked for it, and you know, it's my toil, right? And there's value to it. Even though it is deserving to be there, Christ calls us to lay it down. So although we are in power, he asks for another submission here. Although we have what is, I would say, more or much, Christ calls for a submission. If you think about it, it sounds really akin to Jesus' work. Right? Jesus was in glory. Jesus was in heaven. Jesus had it all. Jesus was with the Father. Jesus was, um, you know, just living in eternity, living in glory. And he lays that all down. He submits to us. It's crazy because we ask God for all these things. But we have been given so much more than we could ever ask for through his son. And we've been promised so much more than we can even fathom for ourselves through his sacrifice. We've been called more than conquerors. But yet again, his call here is to lay down our own interests for the sake of others. This active laying down. This active servitude. And what are we doing? We are speaking to how power should operate. Because power should be generous. Power should be sacrificial. Power should be responsible. 
for others. Racial tension continues to mount higher and higher each and every day. And you know, like, wherever side you land on, whether it's, you know, the topic of racism, gun control, whatever, I believe that America is just angry. America is angry. And the angry desire to provoke and inflame more anger in those around them. It doesn't matter what side you land on. I'm not talking about a righteous anger, right? An anger we should have when injustice occurs, right? That is what we're called to have. I'm talking about a chaotic, murderous, callous anger that seeks justice through retaliation. I think the greatest, maybe the tamest, I'm not sure, um, example of this is cancel culture. Think about what cancel culture is. It's immediate retaliation to someone who has done something wrong or committed something that is, I guess, preposterous to our eyes. When celebrities say something racist, something sexist, something tone deaf, even if they've said it like 10 years ago, you know, because everything on Twitter is there forever almost, it seems. What happens? There is a call to cancel them. There is a call to erase them. There is a call to take away the, any opportunities for them to learn, to get better, to move forward. And what we are doing essentially is flexing power over them. You know, just recently, back in March, um, this whole issue with Dr. Seuss came up. Um, you know, Dr. Seuss, uh, you know, it, it came to light because a lot of his work had uh, really racist and really stereotypical um, drawings and images of both Asian and black people. And there was this anger elicited from parents, and, you know, rightfully so, because it is angering that this man drew these things and portrayed people in this way. But cancel him? Bury him? Not because he's Dr. Seuss. Right? But because the call to cancel him to, means to forget he existed, to move on to quote unquote better authors who are out there. And yes, there are other authors that we can highlight, but we learn nothing when we try to erase and edit our history in this way. We learn nothing. We teach the next generation nothing when we just say, let's just forget about this. Let's forget this happened because we don't want to look at this anymore. When what we need to do is speak to it, we need to address what happened. We need to talk about the tensions of race, of cartoons, of literature, of children's literature. And we need to teach the next generation why this was wrong. Canceling people in history and social media makes us no better than them. What we are enforcing at that point is, you only get to speak if you have all the right answers, all the appropriate responses, and the proper mindset. If you don't have them, you don't get to talk. You don't get to have an opinion. No one learns. That's not, that's not the church. It's satisfying. It is, but it's not what Christ calls us to. And one of the other uh, examples I can think of is, you know, back to social media. 
Look at how we speak to each other on Facebook, Twitter, any thread really, but especially Christian ones. They're steeped in toxicity. They're condescending. Maybe they're not cussing each other out, but most of the time, you're not witnessing a conversation. You're actually just reading people spouting what they believe because they think they're right and people refuting any other point that is counter to their own and dismissing any other point or any other views without much consideration. There's no listening. There's no engaging. It's just talking. The way in which we engage other people, maybe because it's behind a keyboard, behind a screen, maybe because you kind of feel anonymous, is atrocious, really. When we talk about racism in America, if social media has shown the church anything, it's that there has been an outcry from millions of people over years. And the church leaders have either dismissed them, scoffed at them, or they were too scared to address them because they didn't want to shake the status quo. Outcry from millions. Millions of people. When the oppressed seek justice for people like Dante Wright, we have authorities who dodge taking responsibility until the very last minute. We do not address pain. In fact, what we do see is more than anything is character assassination. Critical questions. What could this man have done better? To live. To survive. The response from power is not generous. It's not brave. It's not courageous. It doesn't stand up for anything. It doesn't look like justice. It doesn't look like righteousness. It doesn't look like salt and it doesn't look like light. The first time I was ever called a chink was when I was in kindergarten. And you know, I can't even count how many times after that I've either heard something derogatory about my eyes, my sexuality, or my masculinity. And, you know, I knew so many Asian men, you know, who were like me, who experienced the same thing. And, you know, a lot of them, what they did was they listened to gang rap. It's not something I could really get into. And it wasn't like mainstream rap, right? It was like that underground, hardcore gang rap. And I could never understand uh, why. And not to say I'm better than them because, like, I embraced other toxic things that express my masculinity. But I know you're out there. Right? I know some of you are out there. I, I don't think you enjoyed listening to bad lyrics and then the, just the sounds of guns cocking and firing like over and over again. Like it, it, it was, it's not pleasant music, right? I remember when Still Dre came out. Do you remember when Still Dre came out? And then like all these kids, right? Teenagers, right? Just, just, just rapping this song out, like embracing it, telling them like, yeah, this is like my life. Still rock khakis with a cuff and crease. Still got love for the streets. Repping 213. It's like, we live in New Jersey. That's not our area code. It's not the same thing. But it's, it's a response. 
It's an expression of overhyped machismo in response to whatever has made you or them or whoever think that you need to feel that way. And this is not just in response to white people, right? Like it happened from everyone. And unfortunately, comments about stinky lunches, parents who can't speak English and racial slurs, you know, they don't stop there. They lead to other things. I, for one, you know, went to college in the Midwest and unfortunately that really exposed me to the more violent side of America towards a minority. Constant tension, bickering and fighting at bars, people telling me to go back to China. Um, I knew someone that he was drinking at a local bar and, you know, he got in with it with a couple frat boys and they stomped on his face until he had to get his mouth wired shut the next day. There is so much hatred. And then there's so much retaliation. And when we retaliate with violence, when we dismiss those who attack us or disagree with us or are just downright racist and belligerent, we continue a cycle of anger over and over again. And guess what? We stay angry. The love of Christ speaks... The, the love of Christ that he describes is nowhere to, to be seen. I turned 35, and I still feel like I'm young, right? I still feel young. But as I get older, not too much of the world, or not too much of what the world has spoken about me has changed, even over the last, say, like 20 years. In fact, it wasn't so long ago when... They're a couple, both husband and wife, I'm assuming. You know, they looked at me and then they did the slanty eye thing. It, it was only a few years ago that a woman walking by told me that I was a bad driver because I was Asian. I remember one of the last times I was called a chink, I felt the same flash of anger. It's all too familiar. Same rush of adrenaline. And you know, I gotta be honest, like I, I like to think that I'm quick on my feet when it comes to saying something back because I had a dozen things I could have said to cut this person down. And you know what's crazy? Because people, it just goes to show how ruthless people can be. There's something, what trends nowadays in response to an insult is what? Kill yourself. When someone says something bad to you, you just run, go kill yourself. That is how we respond to people. But I remember um, just being put in this situation, uh, seeing them, you know, as we were passing by, made a comment, called me a chink, said some other things. I turned around and I looked at them. And, you know, at this point, I, you know, they're expecting a, co a confrontation because, you know, I think, you know, for them too, like this is a high intensity situation. I looked at him and I said, I'm good, man. I think you need to chill out. And that's kind of been like the response I've embraced over the years as people have said those things. I'm good because I'm secure in who I am. I'm good because I know who God has called me to be. I'm good because you can't take that away from me. 
Are you secure? Do you need to attack me like this because you're not secure? Because I'm good. And if they decide to insult me again, then I will continue to let you know or let them know I'm better than that. That is what Christ is calling us to do here. That is how Christ is calling us to respond to power. So I hope that we can be a church that does that today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, your heart, your challenges, your grace, your power, God. The power that you give to your people. And Lord, it is unlike any power that we have in this world. It is like on any, any power at all in the universe, actually. I'm so grateful, Lord, for who you are in this way. That in this aspect of your character, you're so consistent in both grace, mercy, and love. That your heart for justice stays true. It's not cast aside. That your value for your people is the same. Because we are more than conquerors, Lord, you call us to more. Because we are more than conquerors, because we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings, God, you call us to something higher, something greater, something beyond the scope of this world, God. And I believe that little by little, that is how we bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. God, the ways in which you work and you minister to your people, beyond anything we can imagine is greater than anything we could ever know and it produces more and better fruit than anything we could produce on our own so Lord help us to surrender our right to retaliate to you I truly believe that Martin Luther King was a prophet. And this is the word that you gave to him. Lord, racism has not gone away from our country. 
pessimistically, maybe not for a long time. But would you help us to be light? Help us to be salt in the midst of this chaos, of this division, because we are more divided than ever and the hatred that we have for the other. I pray, God, um, that you would anoint your people. You know, our worship leader, Rich, prayed this, and I really do agree. But Lord, that you would anoint your people so that your word would call them to action. That your anointing on them would be so heavy, that it would be so thick, God that they could not help but to be kingdom workers where they go, beings of transformation wherever they go, Lord. No matter how big or small their, their interaction is, their conflict, their conversation, that the burden would be so heavy upon them that your heart would be so clear to them that who you are would really be put over them. So I thank you for this time, God. I thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your kingdom. We look towards you. You are our only hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Uh, if you do have a communication card, just want to ask you to go to it. Got some next steps for you. The first next step is, I do not consider myself a Christian, but want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. I love this. If this is you, um, please check it off. Because this is one of the most important things to us. We want to walk with you we want to answer whatever question that you might have. Even if there's something you disagree about. So please check that off and you'll definitely hear from us. The second is I will pray a blessing over someone I have hostility with. You know, it happens. Sometimes you just don't get along with someone or some things are said, shouldn't have been said. Praying a blessing over them is just is really, it's a sign of forgiveness. I hope that you can do that today. The third is, I will pray about what it means to be generous with myself. Now, this is not to be generous to yourself, right? Because I think that's easy. Generous with yourself. How can you be generous with your time, with your words, with your wealth, with your power? The fourth is, I am tired angry, despairing, and I need to talk to a pastor. Um, yo, our social climate sucks. So if this is you, please check that off and we will definitely have pastoral care for you. I know that the past year or so has been really hard. So please check that off. And the fifth is, uh, as Pastor Peter announced before, I will attend the sacred space on Sunday, May 2nd. This is an important conversation. It's not just for you to listen, it's also for you to be heard. Definitely check that out.